But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we're in a series looking at how God spoke words of grace and comfort and promise to his people in the midst of their anxious times in order to be reminded that God speaks those same words of grace and comfort and promise to us in our anxious times. We're in this age that Time Magazine calls the, uh, dubbed the age of anxiety even before the COVID pandemic. So here is Israel, God writing to them in the midst of their anxious time. They're about to be deported to Babylon. The people of Judah are about to be sent off into exile. And God is speaking to his people over a hundred years before the fact to say to them, I will be with you. I will comfort you. Be not afraid. So three weeks ago we looked at the first part of Isaiah chapter 40 and God's yearning to comfort his people. Isaiah 40 verse 1 begins, comfort, comfort my people. God speaking of his yearning to comfort his people. Again, 150 years before they would actually cry out to him seeking his comfort and his presence. And three weeks ago, as we looked at that passage, we saw, you know what, even to this very day, that yearning of God to comfort his people when his people cry out to him remains. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the rest of Isaiah 40 and saw Isaiah envisioning God's people as if they were prosecuting attorneys, bringing a case against God, a case that they felt was watertight, based on their own experience at least. God doesn't see, and God doesn't care. And then Isaiah went through the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 and made, uh, broke down their case, absolutely destroyed it by pointing to the wisdom and to the power and to the incomparability and the watchfulness and the covenant faithfulness of God. Last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 41 and the gracious invitation of God to the coastlands, to the nations, going out to the world to put their trust in God. The offer of God to trust Him and not be afraid, even in the face of great uncertainty, is an offer that Isaiah was telling us in Isaiah chapter 41 would indeed go to the nations, not just the people of Judah in the time of Isaiah. This week, we consider the presence of God with us through every 
kind of trial. When we face trials, we often ask two questions. Where is God and why is this happening? And what Isaiah 43, 1 through, tell, 1 through 7 tells us is that God is saying, I'm with you. Even more, I love you. I created you. I redeemed you. My heart treasures you and highly esteems you. In fact, God says in Isaiah 43, 1-7, I will pay any price to have you as my own. That's the message of Isaiah 43, 1-7. Where it will lead, if we believe what God is saying to us in this passage, is to the closing of the gap between our fear and our faith. We will experience fear as Christians. There are many things that cause us to be afraid, not least of which is death itself. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 does not say that Jesus liberated us from the fear of death. It says that Jesus liberated us from slavery to the fear of death. Christians will be afraid. We will experience fear. But because of God's great love, we are able to increasingly narrow the gap between our fear and our faith because of God's grace to us as we put our trust in Him. So there's three things that we see in this text that if we believe these things, it will help narrow the gap between our fear and our faith. First, the heart of God for His people. Second, the presence of God with his people. And then finally, the promise of God to his people. So the heart of God for his people, the presence of God with his people, and the promise of God to his people. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this morning. We pray that by your Spirit, you will be working through these wonderful verses to remind us of glorious things that are true concerning you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the heart of God for his people. And let's look at verse 1. What we're going to see as we go through verse 1 is just this increasing depth of intimacy with which God speaks to his people. Us. Not just the people of Judah. So first, created. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, that is the same word that's used to describe God's work of creation in Genesis 1. God created all things from nothing. God created his people, if you will, from nothing. He called Abram. Abram was, what, 100? Sarah, 99? It seemed impossible that they could ever conceive. And God blessed Abram, Abraham, and Sarah with a son. And the covenant promise of God would endure. The people of God, the family of Abraham, would become a blessing to the nations from nothing, as it were. God created his people. Isaiah goes on in that third line of the first verse, 
He who formed you, O Israel. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 2 verse 7 to describe the forming of man from the dust of the earth. This is getting a little bit more intimate than just kind of created. This is like the picture of a a piece of clay on the potter's wheel and the potter forming the clay, applying just the right pressure at just the right time and God is saying, that's how I have formed you, O people of mine. He has redeemed you. Look at the fourth line of verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. This is an even more intimate word. In Ruth, you know the story of Ruth. Ruth returns to Na- with Naomi. She is in a desperate situation. She has no husband. And Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who takes Ruth as his own. Ruth was absolutely, materially in need. And Boaz, in taking her as his own, in being to her, her kinsman redeemer, took her need upon himself. Her need became his need. Whatever cost that needed to be paid to support her, he paid that price for her. What Ruth was to Boaz materially, we are spiritually to our Boaz, to our Redeemer, God Himself. God said, I have redeemed you. Our need became His need. Next we see God saying, He highly esteems us. So look at the end, the fifth line of verse 1. I have called you by name, you are mine. Now this is, this is in terms of verse 1, this is as intimate as it gets. I've created you, I've formed you, I've, I've become to you your kinsman redeemer to pay all your debt and provide for all your needs and I have I've married you. I've given you my name. I've called you by name. It's the same thing in in verse 7 when it talks about everyone who is called by my name. What God is saying here through Isaiah is I am giving, in the the same way that traditionally a, a wife takes the name of her husband, so too God is saying I've given you my name. You are mine. And then look down to verse 4. God says, because you are precious in my eyes. This speaks of the great value that God sees in his people. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18, Paul talks about the glorious inheritance that God has in the saints. Which means that we are God's glorious inheritance. He looks upon those whom his son died for, whose blood purchase their salvation and he says of us this is my I cannot wait to have this inheritance as my own these people are precious in my sight they are of great worth of great value to me God says concerning his people verse 4 we're also told that we are uh, honored by God because you are precious in my eyes second line of verse 4 and honored there's a dignity that is ours by virtue of our relationship to God It's not a dignity that we possess within ourselves. It's a dignity that is conferred to us because we are so close to Him. And then, to cap it all off, God says in verse 4, I love you. I love you. 
It's his love that undergirds all these things. It's the love that he has for his people, not because we're lovely. Right, we talked about that back in Deuteronomy 7. God, why do you love me? Oh, because I love you. It's amazing. He loves because he loves. His love is unchanging. His love is unfailing. What words could we give for God's love for his people? Unfailing, sure. Unconditional, sure. Unequivocal, yes. Eternal. And how many more? This is God's heart for his people. It's a heart of love. Second, Isaiah tells us of God's presence with his people. And we see this in verse 2. Let's look there. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. So this contrast between water and fire is the way to point to the totality of life's trials. Through every sort of trial, I will be with you, God says. The fact that he mentions the waters and then rivers and fire and then flames points to not only a sense of reinforcement but also specificity. So we're invited there to think through the kind of specific trials that we face and recognize that in these specific trials, not just in this general sense, but in these specific trials that we're facing even now, God is saying, I am with you. Specific trials, including those trials that are brought on by our own sin. Now where do I get that? I get that in the chapter that immediately precedes our own for this morning. Isaiah 42. Especially in Isaiah 42 verses 18 through 25 where it is specifically talking about how God is going to punish his people for their refusal to put their trust in him and obey him. And then in 42 verses 24 and 25 we read this. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? So listen. So he poured out on him, that is on Israel, on God's people, the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. But he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. What is being said there by Isaiah is looking down the course of history that is to come within those 100 to 150 years before they go off into exile. Isaiah is saying, here are God's people. They are not going to take to heart what God is doing. And they're going to continue to rebel and reject his ways. And even when they end up in exile and God's Fire, if you will, is poured down upon them. They still are not going to understand. They still are not going to get it. But, chapter 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord. The, The transition from verse 42, I'm sorry, chapter 42 to chapter 43, is not one of chronology, It's not one of if-then. It's one, if you will, of both-and. 
God is saying in chapter 42, I will pour out the fire of my wrath and punishment on my people and I will be with them through that fire. The flames shall not consume you. That's stunning and comforting. God says, even when you are experiencing my discipline, because Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves, and discipline is not pleasant. But God is saying, even in the midst of that discipline, and to God's people here in Isaiah, even in the midst of the fire of exile, I am with you through it all. You remember a couple weeks ago, I think it was the, the three weeks ago, when we talked about uh, Isaiah and the whole flamethrower lemonade dynamic, right? Isaiah feels like God is just, you know, throwing a, a flamethrower on his people and then every now and then, you know, stops and offers them a drink of lemonade. This is the flamethrower lemonade dynamic right here. 42, flamethrower. 43, lemonade. In the midst of the heat of the discipline of God, God offers the consolation of his presence. He is with you in every trial, every trial, including the trials that we face as a result of our own sin when God is disciplining us for it. And therefore, we can be assured that he will accomplish his purpose for us in the midst of it. First of all, he will preserve us. The, the waters will not overwhelm you. The fire will not consume you. God will ensure as He is present with you that they will not; these things will not make a complete end of you. And He will accomplish His purpose to refine you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and following, this is a familiar passage. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus will accomplish his purpose in us. God will continue to refine our faith, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of trials that are the result of our own sin. God is that committed to accomplishing his work in us. And he will be with us through it all. God is present with his people through every kind of trial. But then third, let's finish up with this. The promise of God to his people. God says to us, I will pay any price to have you. I will pay any price to have you. You are worth that much to me. In verse 3, he assures them, in verse 3, by telling them, I am yours and you are mine. I'm yours and you are mine. He tells them in the first part of verse 3, you are mine. He reminds them of these things. Verse 3, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In those verses right there, he says that phrase, Holy One of Israel. That is a way for them to be reminded that they are his. Of course, he said it up a few verses earlier in verse 1, I've called you by name, you are mine. But even there, they are reminded, we belong to this God. The Holy One of Israel. Here is this holy God, this perfectly pure God, who is punishing them for their sin. He's disciplining them and refining them. And yet he is the Holy One of Israel. He is committed to them. He will not cast them off. 
He will not let them go. He says to them, you are mine. But he also reminds them that he is theirs. Verse 3, again, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. They may be his, but he is also theirs. God is your God, O Christian. Everything that God says about himself to his people, he says to you. He is your Savior, O Christian. In the second half of verse 3, God says, I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. This is where we begin to talk about the payment, the cost, the ransom. The ransom is the price that was paid to buy back a life. For God's people to be delivered from Egypt at the time of the Exodus, the price that was paid to deliver the people of Israel was the firstborn of Egypt. Israel was redeemed from Egypt with Egypt as the payment. I gave Egypt for you. Judah would be redeemed or rescued from Babylon with Babylon as the payment. We talked last week about the Persian Empire and Cyrus the Great who would come through and conquer Babylon and ultimately that would result in God's people being freed to go back home. Israel was redeemed, was rescued from Egypt with Egypt as payment and Judah was redeemed or rescued from Babylon with Babylon as payment and in verse 4 God says, I will pay any price to have you. I would give the whole world as payment to have you. Verse 4, third line, I give men in return to you, peoples in exchange for your life. I love the way Eugene Peterson put it in the message. I paid a huge price for you, all of Egypt, with rich cushion Seba thrown in. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'd sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation just for you. God will pay any price in exchange for his people. He also goes on to say here at the end of the passage, I will call my people to myself from the ends of the earth. Verses 5 and 6, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Now, commentators point out that there's something happening here that goes beyond just God pledging to bring his people back from Babylon. This reference to the ends of the earth, to the north, the south, the east, and the west, is pointing to something a little bit further down the road. Remember we talked earlier in the series about how Isaiah and the people reading Isaiah would have looked at this future that Isaiah was prophesying as if it were a mountain range as a cardboard cutout. And it wasn't until you got there and these things began to be fulfilled over time that you realized you were in the depth of a mountain range. And what's happening here at the end of this passage we're looking at this morning is we're getting a picture not at the leading edge of the mountain range and Judah coming home, but at the far end when Jesus Christ returns. This anticipates revelation. People from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation gathered around the throne. But what price did God pay? God said, I would give up humankind for you. I would give up the nations for you in order to have you. But 
Did he? We don't read that here in Isaiah 43. There's nothing about a, a payment that is made in order to bring these people from the ends of the earth. When you get to Isaiah 52 and 53, we're going to get a picture when we read about the suffering servant, the one on whom the sins of the people was laid. And it's not until Romans 5, 8, when we're told very clearly that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet in that distant country far from God, God showed his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Israel was redeemed from Egypt with Egypt as payment. Judah was redeemed from Babylon with Babylon as payment. Christians are redeemed from sin with Christ as payment. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ransom. His life is the price paid to win back your life. Why? Because verse 7 is about you. Verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. What God said of Judah and of his people in the first part of Psalm 40, of Isaiah 43, he says here in verse 7 of you. Jesus is the ransom. He shed his blood for you because you are loved by God. You have been created by Him. You have been called out of darkness into His light. You who were dead in your transgressions and sin, God brought to life. He created you by the word of His power. He has formed you through various trials. He redeemed you by the blood of His Son. You are precious in His sight. You are honored. There's a dignity conferred on you because you belong to Jesus. And he paid the highest price to have you as his own. Jesus from the cross said, it is finished. And God from heaven said, it is enough. And so the question is, is it enough for you? Is it enough for you to trust him? I love this old hymn. It reminds me of my early church days as a as a new Christian, enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The heart of God for his people, well, where do we find the words? Unconditional, unequivocal, eternal. The presence of God with his people, unfailing through every trial. The promise of God to His people, I have paid the highest price to have you as my own and I will not let you go. How do we apply all this? Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. As we take these things to heart, not if, but when we are afraid, 
we can be reminded that we can put our trust in Him. And we will experience fear. But if we take to heart what God tells us through Isaiah and Isaiah 43, 1-7, the gap between our fear and our faith can grow ever, ever closer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us by your grace to see this gap in which we feel fear and then feel all kinds of anxiety and wrestle with all kinds of doubt and question whether you are there and and begin to make a case against you, not based on your word, but based on our own experience that surely you're not there and surely you don't care. Oh Lord, would you help us to take to heart this truth right here from Isaiah 43 that you are with us through every kind of trial, that we're precious in your sight, we're being formed by you, you've paid the highest price to have us as your own and you will never let us go. And then God, by grace, would you help us to believe simply to trust in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.